welcome to Holy Ordinary. I'm your host, Laura Kelly. This is the first episode of this podcast, and I'm really excited to begin this journey with you guys, really hoping to grow this and have some neat conversations. If you haven't already, check out the Holy Ordinary Instagram page. It's at Holy Ordinary. It's on there that we're going to be talking about new content that's being released discussing what's been going on in the podcast episodes. It's a way for you guys to connect with me, connect with other people um, as we all join in on this conversation. (laughs) I did have experience with podcasting when it first came out. I was part of a group at my school called the Wildlife Warriors. This is back in first grade. And as part of that group, it was in honor of Steve Irwin, who had passed away, I believe it was that year. Um... We did a bunch of different things involving art and technology, and part of that was using the podcasting uh, platform to talk about whatever topics I think we decided to talk about, which was a tall task for some first graders, but we had help from our tech facilitator, and we ended up going to the Apple Store in Charlotte, being invited there to talk about it to the public, which was really cool for, you know, a six or seven-year-old. Um, All I remember was that we got in the newspaper and got some t-shirts. I honestly don't remember what we talked about. I also remember my mom took me to Chick-fil-A and I was so excited, but that experience was super cool for me and I wish I kept up with it, kept up with the platform um, because now it seems to be booming, but you know, here we are starting over. So you guys are just going to have to bear with me. I'm learning as I go. I really wanted to begin this series, this this podcast by talking about, um, as you can tell by the title, it's titled Spiritual Deconstruction. So um, something that I am kind of interweaving in all of the episodes of this podcast is the topic of spirituality. I think that's such an important thing to me personally. Um, I am a Christian, so I'll, you know, put my cards out there. And spirituality is something that is much more comfortable in our society today. We're much more comfortable talking about it than we have been um, perhaps previously in the sense of not necessarily being tied to a particular belief system. Beliefs are being contested constantly in our culture and in our society today, and I think that's wonderful. Um, Given that, I think lots of people, you know, are raised in a particular faith and as they grow and develop and are exposed to other worldviews, they begin to perhaps question what they were raised with, what they were instilled with, or, you know, if they have been adopted into, or if they have personally adopted a particular faith or a particular set of beliefs, as the years go by, you begin to reevaluate. And that's really what we're going to be talking about here. I think it's a movement that has been popularized by Rhett and Link, They are two, I I believe they're former Christians at this point. Um, I think they were comedians as as their, that's how they started their YouTube career, but they use the platform now to just talk about different things. So the the spiritual idea of spiritual deconstruction was really popularized through them, although it was first written about in philosophy. I think the idea of reevaluating your beliefs is something that has always been around. Now we just kind of have a different title for it. And with the new title comes more controversy. So people are debating, like, is spiritual deconstruction a bad thing, a good thing? Should we expose our children to it? Should we not? And it's a really interesting conversation. So I wanted to start the basis of this podcast with that because 
spirituality is something that I believe permeates every aspect of our life. It's something that touches on the way that you eat, the way that you act with other people, the way you view the universe. So since that's going to be woven throughout, I just wanted to begin with the basis of, you know, what does spirituality and building spirituality, perhaps even doing a little bit of demolition work, look like? So deconstruction, as I've already kind of talked about, is not necessarily an abandonment of a previous belief system, but kind of an analyzation. Like, you know, you wouldn't, when you buy a house, you have to have it inspected. You wouldn't want to buy a house without thoroughly looking over what the problems are or just what you have, what you're working with. You know, you wouldn't want to find out you have mold in the attic until after you moved in. So even though you're living in this house, you know, you might want to periodically go in the attic, peek in there and be like, is everything still okay? So as we're growing, that's just a healthy process. Reflection is something that everybody should be doing because, you know, you're constantly moving, you're constantly changing, your environment's changing. The way that you look at the world changes. And if your belief in your spirituality isn't adjusting to the new contours that you're approaching, not that you're changing your beliefs, but, you know, just adjusting to the way that you think about it, or like, how, how do my beliefs apply to this new situation I'm being faced with? Um, I just don't think that's healthy. So we're going to be talking about this process today. It doesn't necessarily involve taking a sledgehammer to the walls of your house of spirituality, your house of faith, um, but it's just like a thorough looking at what you've come to believe over your lifetime. And this is sometimes simple, natural, personal, organic, um, something you don't realize perhaps that you've gone through, or, you know, maybe you've never really thought about why you believe what you believe. And so intentionally going on that trip, intentionally going on that journey of why do I believe this and what do other people have to say about this is something that I think is really important to look at in your spirituality. So I will not be sharing my personal deconstruction story with you guys today. However, I do have a guest. Um, I've invited the Anderson University Honors Program Director, Christian Studies Professor, Dr. Chuck Fuller, to be with us to talk about how he sees deconstruction relating to his work, the church, and his own life. It, it, it really does begin in my own childhood. I have a distinct memory of being about 12 years old, and I had been uh, you know, I was baptized when I was seven and had, had been a believer for, uh, you know, my conscious life, so to speak, and uh, uh, had, a, had, a, had a strong conversion experience when I was six years old, uh, where I can remember coming home from church, laying in my bed one night, realizing I didn't understand everything, but also realizing that I was uh, a sinner apart from God, and um, that I needed Jesus. And I, I got my dad out of bed that night. I'm six years old and he takes me to the couch in our living room and we walk through scripture together. And, uh, you know, I think that night in a, I guess in a formalizing way, we, I prayed to receive Christ, which is certified the things that God had been doing in my heart. And, uh, then, you know, fast forward to being 12 years old, I'm in, I'm in middle school and, uh, in the afternoons I would come home from school and, shoot basketball in our driveway waiting for dad to come home or um uh, maybe i would watch a little bit the uh, chicago cubs used to play in the afternoon i didn't like the cubs but they were on tv 
and so I'd you know grab a Coke, a box of Cheez It, um, sit and watch a few innings of the Cubs, and then go outside and shoot hoops. <clears throat> and one day I was I was shooting free throws, and I had this thought: uh, What if someone just made it all up? Uh, what if I just believe this Jesus stuff because I'm supposed to believe it, and the people around me believe it, and my parents believe it, and it's just been handed to me? Uh, but what if some guy in some corner room somewhere so many centuries ago just wrote this nice little story and suddenly people started believing it um, kind of like a, a fish tale or, or some other you know functional myth and that thought really rattled me um, it, it really rattled me in fact I, I think at the end of it I, I would still sort of stay in the faith by reminding myself of um, a cross and a claim to a resurrection and that all all of that seemed uh, crazy enough to be true so to speak yeah um seemed beyond what we could we could make up and so I would I would hold to that <clears throat> and uh, but but this this sort of lingering doubt continues and I, I don't I don't talk about it um to to anyone uh really I I think I probably could have and done so safely I just didn't feel like it was safe and that was probably as much immaturity on my part and a desire to maintain a certain image I was the church kid and deacon's kid and all these things right um but it, it still lingers and even when I get into college um I uh um, and becoming, on one hand, in college, more committed to Jesus. This is gonna this is gonna sound weird. <laughs> I'm becoming more committed to Jesus, and I'm and I'm I think I'm experiencing personal spiritual and personal character growth in new ways. At the same time, I'm starting to doubt my faith. Yeah, and I realized that that doesn't make any sense. But that that's what I was living. And uh, this this really came to a point sometime, probably during my sophomore year of college, and then into my junior year. Um, and here I am, uh, junior college, I'm vice president of the BCM, uh, Christian studies major, pastoral ministries track, I'm preaching in churches. Uh, th- that was that was kind of the role I had on campus and in life. And, and here I am internally really wrestling uh, with this, even coming to conclusions that, you know, even if it's not really true, it's still good. Yeah. And because it's good, I'll, I'm going to hang in with this. Uh, look back now, I think, what a stupid thing to think. Um, now I had a friend, uh, his name is Curtis Barnes. He's uh, now a pastor in Arkansas. Uh, we were pretty close. In fact, years later, years after college, we actually pastored together in the same County, uh, for, for a while, same community really. And, and uh, he was my RA. And then when I was an RA, he was the dorm director or whatever they called it then, whatever they call it now, residence life director, something like that. And, um, he uh, started a little study group and he gave me a book and it was by Josh McTowell called more than a carpenter. And uh, this little book just, it really is a play on C.S. Lewis's trilemma. You know, either Jesus is a Lord liar or lunatic. And and he walks out a lot of your evidential historical arguments for the person of Jesus and specifically the resurrection. I devoured this book in one sitting. Um, and it was like the fastest read, most transformational read that I experienced to that, to that time. And I, I mean, I can remember closing that book and standing up like, I have the answers. I have. <laughs> and had, had this like bulging confidence that I hadn't had in a long time. I, I don't know if it was so much the arguments themselves that I encountered, or it was just the fact that here is someone making what appeared to be a really credible argument for uh, the historical Jesus and the death and resurrection. Just that someone could do that, regardless of the format, was really was really pressing to me. Now, look, I had 
you know, I had Christian studies professors and, and students and, and, and they believed this and it was fine. Um, but, but maybe just that accessible, tangible, evidential style argument just seemed to hit me in the right way at, at, at that moment. And it was something I wasn't necessarily getting from my classes. And, and so uh, uh, that summer I took off, this is the summer after my junior year, I take off to Yellowstone Park as a, a North American Mission Board summer missionary. They had this thing, um, oh, I can't even remember the name of the program now, but you would work as an employee in the parks. I cleaned hotel rooms at the same, and you lived in employee dorms and you were there to um, you know, do ministry, be a witness for Christ. And I started a Bible study there in the employee dorm and I became like the Josh McDowell warrior for Jesus. And um, I got myself into all sorts of philosophical discussions that I was not ready for. And, uh, and, and my aggressiveness probably turned more people away from Jesus than it did uh, attract to them. Uh, and just because for one thing, I was in over my head. And, and secondly, I, I was really naive. Um, and so I came back from that summer really defeated, having overcome in some ways this problem of my faith. I, I, I had sorted out some of those problems, even though it was just really the beginning of a journey. Uh, at the same time, defeated in what I'd experienced uh, during that summer. And that really is my launching into what's been a lifelong love for uh, apologetics, not necessarily as a academic discipline, but as how do we think about articulating our faith in a way that is credible and compelling um, in the culture in which we live and to the audiences that are right in front of us through the people that we encounter. And so I have, I'm, I'm always thinking about this. In fact, I don't really think about apologetics um, so much as some, some sort of formal academic discipline as I think about it as how do we, how do we think about it and how we, do we talk about our faith in ways that make sense in ways that are compelling. Uh, to ourselves internally and to, and to other people as, as well. And so that has, you know, f it really follows. So the trajectory of my thought follows kind of what's happening out there. And so now we're, we're encountering this. It's not new. It just has a new name, name and a new phenomenon. Maybe this deconstructing our faith and people uh, leaving the church and uh, deconversions. And, um, and so my own experience and uh, my academic background and my interest in these things has led to maybe a particular kind of intersection with faith de deconstruction and all of that, even though I would not call myself an expert in, in any sense in that realm. There are people out there who really seem to understand this inside and out, um, but I do have some experience with it and I have some thoughts about it. I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, no, definitely. So like, would you say that your perception of how somebody goes about deconstructing, deconstructing has changed over time? Um, and obviously, like, as you mentioned, deconstruction as a title has come about only recently. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, philosophically, when you say the word deconstruction, you think of Derrida and, and some right. of the thinkers that are, uh, you know, still even today pretty radical in, in what they were trying to trying to do, so to speak. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, th I think the essential experience is the same, uh, but I think we, we probably use different terminology to describe it because it's happening in a different cultural moment, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, you know, now deconstruction and deconversion is kind of attached to a larger cultural movement. And I, I guess that it just, it, it, that was not the case in the bubble in which I lived during my undergraduate years, if, if, if I can say that. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, sure, we knew about atheists and we knew there were people who left the Christian faith, but it, it didn't have a, a cultural momentum to it like it has now. It wasn't, definitely wasn't cool. Right. <laughs> um, I think some, you know, as, as it's become more attached to a cultural movement, lots of Christians have tried to define it in a way that gets away from the deconversion type definition. Um, so, you know, some people have described it more as a dialogue between God and man rather than um, viewing it, a relationship with faith as a dictation. Um, mm-hmm. Like, how would you say, you know, do you agree with that or how would you look at that? Uh, yeah, um, we may be tinkering with terms. Um, right. you, you know, I, I think at the heart of it, this strikes to, you know, what, what essentially is faith? Is faith an assent to a set of doctrines that have been received? Or is faith a, a, an act of personal trust and commitment? And you can see how one side of that would be more dictatorial and the other side of that would be more dialogue. Uh, but at the end of the day, at some point, those things have to come together and it has to be both. Um, you know, I come to trust Jesus personally because there are certain things I believe that are true about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I, what what's amazing is the things I believe to be true about him um, become even more remarkable when I realize that uh, he's chosen to know me, right? And... Um, so I, th- I think those things have to come together at some stage and maybe we are, uh, the pendulum may swing a little bit in culture about which side of that we emphasize. Mm-hmm. And I do think maybe uh, church history and cultural whims and um, may bear out the way this pendulum swings from sort of ear to ear and generation to generation. I mean, I am a, uh, I went to college in the 1990s, right? The mid nineties where everything was, uh, personal relationship with God, uh, CCM music, you know, the, the praise music phenomenon um, and, and all of that. And, and honestly, in, during my college years, we just didn't think about doctrine that much at all. I, um, it was there, so to speak, uh, but really the emphasis was on the personal side. And it wasn't until uh, uh, for me personally, when I went to, to, to seminary there in the late 90s and early 2000s, that I begin to think more about a construction of doctrine, how orthodoxy works, the ways we come to know things that, you know, evidential arguments aren't the only things out there. And, and these sort of things, well, at the same time in the broader, you know, younger Christian movement, you have people like John Piper and, and these, these kind of folks coming on the scene who were both, uh, you know, passionate about missions and passionate about Jesus, but at the same time, they were, uh, you know, theologians in their own writing that, you know, I think that was really impressive to my generation. In fact, when I showed up at seminary, I think that's what impressed me so much about the seminary is that here are people who are intellectually rigorous and at the same time, passionately spiritual. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, here are people who are real believers in Jesus and they're really thinking about it. Um, I found that very impressive. And I, I think my own testimony is probably a microcosm of my generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like the church has, I think, shifted more like John Piper, people like that are much more in the spotlight now. Um, you know, since you were in perhaps your undergraduate mid nineties, as you said, like the church was more focused on personal relationship. Not that that has changed, but I definitely think that given the culture of today, um, a focus on having a solid, you know, understanding of not necessarily doctrine, but 
a more intellectual understanding of like the existential questions related to spirituality is definitely more in the light. Um, so given those, the prominence of those Christian speakers and given that kind of shift in the church, what role does analyzation of, of those beliefs play now and in the future of the church? Yeah. I mean, I think um, there's a sense in which that is more popular, so to speak, now than it was uh, 25 years ago, uh, you know, when I was in college or whatever. Um, At the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm happy what I encounter in your generation, people who really are serious about thinking about what they believe that doesn't discourage me at all. Um, I'm, I'm very happy about it. Uh, the last thing I want is uh, another generation of naive Christian believers who, you know, um, find themselves shipwrecked later in life uh, because they haven't really given these things good, thorough thought. Um, I have a close friend. We were roommates in college and we talk a lot and we sometimes refer to our days in college as we, we must have been the worst a generation of college student ever. <laughs> we just didn't think about our faith or worldview or, or these kinds of things at, at a serious level at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our lives were very cleanly compartmentalized and, and your generation is one who seems uh, to refuse to do that. Um, I, th- I think you guys face your own existential crisis more head on uh, than we did. In some ways you welcome it. Um, and in some ways, this is scary. This is scary. Uh, your generation tends, and I think maybe this is our culture at large too, uh, tends more towards self-loathing um, than we did. Uh, uh, you, you know, I, I, I still was raised in an era in which we felt like things were getting better. You know, the world's going to get better, and, mm-hmm. and now our, that promise has faded substantially. Um, so you just live in a different time, and I, I think it, it it brings a different shape. Uh, to some of these conversations. That said, though, I do think um, analysis is important. And while, you know, like the, the program I lead, at the honors program at Anderson, we're not, in, you know, leading students to deconstruct their faith is not one of our outcomes. It's not mm-hmm. one of our formal, formal goals. It's not something that we, we do intentionally. But we understand that by taking students on a journey that spans, you know, 20 centuries of thought and considers all the different ways that Christians have thought about articulating their faith and that the challenges, uh, both temporal and perennial, to the Christian faith, um, especially when you think of waves of modernity and postmodernity and what that has done to how we think about faith, that we know that um, students will in a sense, some of them more openly, some of them, some of them internally, they will go through a, a deconstruction process. Uh, and and um, we don't want to shy away from that reality while at the same time, we're not saying that's what our program is about. We don't advertise the honors program. Hey, come deconstruct your faith with us. Right. Uh, no, the program is about, let's think really hard about faith and learning. <laughs> let's mm-hmm. think hard about the integration of faith to all facets of our lives. Let's think about the the conversation that's happened between uh, Western thought and the Christian faith now for 20 centuries and, and the way those original tensions between Athens and Jerusalem are still there. And uh, knowing that we can't have this conversation or most of our students, most of our students can't have this conversation without being personally implied. And, and they realize at some point, this is, this is not just the world story we're telling, this is their story. 
that, that we're telling. And they have to think hard about the reasons that they believe what they believe. And I, and I think a very common phenomenon, particularly for people in, in you know, college years or young adulthood or however you want to categorize that is often they'll think of themselves as like leaving the faith. I'm leaving the Christian faith and walking away uh, from that only to sort of circle back and realize, no, 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 they were just, they were just leaving a truncated form of a faith that they had received from a church or, or parents or their cultures or whatever. And not that that faith itself was truncated, but they're receiving it and not thinking about it gave them a very truncated form of the Christian faith. And then when you, uh, in a sense, in something like the honors program or just living life or being serious about your faith, in a sense, you kind of take those blinders off and, and you have to, uh, you have, you have to ask yourself and you have to decide this, this faith that I've received, will it be my own? And if so, why? And, and how, how might the faith that becomes my own be the same as or differ from uh, the faith in which I was raised? And, and so I don't, I don't shy away uh, from that process or, or watching students go through that because uh, I certainly don't want them to come to university and uh, still walk away from university with a very naive, um, underdeveloped thought of their own Christian faith, only then to be shipwrecked later in life. I want them to uh, ask the questions uh, in a university environment while they have like mentors by their sides and resources at their fingertips and peers to process this through. This is, I mean, this is part of what the university experience should be. We're, we're not filling your noggins with just information. We want to do personal and character formation through this and spiritual development is part of that. And sometimes that involves um, some deconstruction and reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So is it fair to say that you think, the deconstruction type reanalyzation of faith and rebuilding of a faith um, is a process that should is has been um, tied more organically to just faith in general. Um, and now like that we have the title to work with, it's kind of making a resurgence resurgence in a more prominent light. Yeah, I think that's a really fair way to say it. I'm even thinking of, uh, you know, church history figures. Uh, I mean, think of Luther. Um, he was raised one way in his faith. He experienced a personal crisis. He had to then deconstruct and rebuild what he believed and why he believed it. Just for him, it, it, was, it was not only radical for himself, it ended up being like a, an earthquake movement mm-hmm. uh, in, in, the wider, in the wider world. Uh, so, yeah, I, th- I think this is always happening. Um, I love uh, uh, Jamie Smith's new book, On the Road to St. Saint- Augustine, uh, because his thesis of that book is Augustine's story really is your story. And in some ways, Augustine could be described as the first postmodern because he his, his uh, faith journey tended to be uh, more individual and, and less embedded in modern culture than, than maybe what we perceive of the ancient world or, or the early church era or pre-medieval era or, era or whatever you want to say. Um, but yeah, I think, I think this is always a, a reality, um, how we, how we come to terms with what we believe about God, the world and ourselves. Um, maybe it's just in our personal moment, we're more free to talk about it. And, uh, than we have been in, in decades past in our context. Now, you know, again, I don't want to compare, you know, this, our current time to history at large or the history of the church. Uh, but just comparing it to the last few decades of maybe American Christianity, it's it's we're more free to talk about it because it's more 
comfortable maybe for a few reasons. Um, and, and maybe just that it was so uncomfortable previously because we were still living in an echo of Christendom to where mm-hmm. it just wasn't, wasn't cool to doubt your faith. And, and now it's more okay. Right. Um, that feels rather disconnected, but there you go. So carrying that idea, um, obviously the honors program is a very specific setting. As you said, there's a multitude of resources, mentors, um, if you want to call it a safe environment to kind of go through this kind of questioning process, um, that's the place to do it. But carrying that out to people who don't have access to that, carrying that out to the idea of a church where, you know, you might say people come into the program perhaps having inherited a more truncated faith. Um, what does it look like to not have a, a, a generation coming up in the church being frightened or scared of the idea of analyzing the faith, um, given you know that not everybody has access to an environment like that? Yeah, I, um, I, mm, that's that's a that's a good question. Um, I think there are some churches out there that may be a bit afraid of Gen Z and all of your questions or, you know, however you want to categorize this. And you have some churches that will sort of fall back on old cliches and not meaning to be unwelcoming to those students, but they're in fact providing them with very cheap answers that they find far less than satisfying. Uh, so I, I think some churches are, are maybe scared and not ready, um, but there are some that, that really are. Um, and so I, I don't want to stereotype because I think this varies church to church to church, depending on their own commitments, uh, their cultural location and context, uh, their tradition from which they come. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't want to get up in too much, gen- caught up in too much generational politics. Everybody says, oh, this next generation is going to be so disruptive to the church. Look, we have said this about every generation since who knows when, right? <laughs> and, and I, I, I just try not to be alarmist um, with that. Um, but I do think uh, the church needs to be sure it's providing, again, I'm trying not to use cliches, but I can't help it. Uh, the church is providing some sense of safety uh, for people, particularly young people who are, who are really walking through sincere and honest questions about their faith, especially since we live in an era where I think there's more public and open uh, questioning of the faith than there ever has been, whether it's celebrities um, openly deconverting, um, uh, like the singer from Hot Nelson a couple of weeks ago, um, popular pastors, um, the guy who wrote A Kiss Dating Goodbye, Josh, um, what is his name? Anyway, um, we've had some pretty popular deconversions. And, um, and then you have, you know, new atheists always doing their thing, whether it's Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or, or, or those guys. And so I think because we live in an increasingly pluralistic uh, society, churches do need to be a little bit more intentional about providing areas within their ministries for people to search out, search out questions. And so I always thought, man, you know, now that I'm no longer in the senior pastor role, I kind of long and hunger for, and it's not happened yet, maybe it'll happen one day or in the future, I kind of long and hunger for a place in a local church where I, where I can just sit with um, young adults and 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 hear and think about and respond to, uh, not that I need to be Bible answer man by any stretch, but just walk with them through that process of, of the questions that they have 
in a way that they can know it's it's you know it's very safe to ask these questions. You're not going to be accused or kicked out for asking these. Uh, we, this is what this is for. And so I'm I'm kind of hungry to replicate a little bit. And again, it'd be very different, right? Um, but I'm I'm hungry to replicate a little bit of what we do in the honors program in local churches because I think I think churches are going to have to. Um, begin to do more of that kind of work. And, and, and I hesitate to use the word apologetics because churches say, well, oh, we offer a class in apologetics. Well, what you're offering is a class that walks through the four or five traditional arguments for the existence of God and a couple of reasons that God may allow evil. And we're, we're like, okay, case closed. When that's not really, um, obviously those things are always needed and, and those things are part of the process. Um, but uh, what, I, what I mean is we need space for people to explore these on an individual level and understanding, you know, what's happening out there in our culture and how that intersects with uh, people of faith. And here I'm thinking of like Charles Taylor's secularization theory where, you know, every belief is contestable in our culture now and everybody feels pressured. You know, the people who believe always feel pressured not to believe and people who don't believe always feel pressured to believe. And we live in that, in that cross pressure as, as Taylor would um, say, and I, and I think our churches are, are, are going to have to find a way and a place to help people navigate those really choppy waters. You see, it tends to be those kind of the same churches that are like, oh, the church is dying because of this generation upcoming um, with all their questions. But um, I think I agree with you. The church needs to move forward towards, you know, accepting those questions and letting them play out in a church context. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, I think sometimes churches and pastors, and I've been there and I, I felt all of this, uh, these sorts of movements and having these kinds of folks in your church, it can be frightening, right? Yeah. Um, you know, no, no one wants to have, and I think what we fear is the person with an agenda, uh, mm the person who has deconstructed their faith and they come into this clash, they come into this church ministry and their true agenda is to, is to tug the rope their way. And maybe they're hurt and maybe they're angry. And out of that hurt and out of that anger, uh, they want everybody else to deconstruct as they've deconstructed. Right. Um, this is where I think ministries uh, like the one Francis Schaeffer started, the, the Labrie ministry. Uh, I think those things are tremendous. And, and there are aspects of Labrie uh, that could be scaled and replicated in the local church, uh, you know, where we're giving people room to, a lot of people out there have been hurt by the Christian faith and, and, and we're just now free to talk about it. Uh, whether it's the, the Me Too and Church Too movements, the reality of sexual abuse and uh, amongst a variety of issues, um, a lot of people have been hurt and some of their deconstruction slash deconversion relates as much to pain as to anything philosophical or cultural. In fact, more so typically, more, more so people deconvert and deconstruct because of some particular point of pain. And uh, we can't fear that. Where the church needs to repent, we should repent. Um, uh, we need to put the, 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 you know, the light of the gospel exposes problems before it solves them. And, and we need to welcome that exposure. Um, and and when, when people have been hurt by the faith, it's a long, slow walk, but hopefully we can demonstrate them. Look, it's not Jesus that hurt you. It, it was a hijacking of the faith. It was a terrible twisting of, of the Christian faith. It was some sort of parasite evil leeching from the faith that, that hurt you. Um, uh, 
and and often that's um, that's a rigorous, painful, um, emotional, long-term kind of experience that, uh, frankly, for church staff or pastors or churches in general, just takes a huge investment and a lot of energy, and and frankly, it can just be exhausting, right? It can Absolutely. be. Exhausting. And, 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 you know, churches are so often focused on, they have to, they have to survive. So they're thinking about numbers and, and budgets and, and programs and their reach and, and all of these things that it, it, it can be very burdensome uh, to do that long, slow work of working with those who have questions that stem either from intellectual concerns or uh, from personal pain. Right. Well, um, one kind of final question, um, I guess it's kind of two questions, um, you know, given your exp personal experience um, with realization of faith and doubt, um, you know, given your position in the honors program, your position as a pastor, your position as a Christian, um, what advice would you give to somebody either, you know, realizing, you know, in that one moment of existential dread, like, oh man, what if this is all not true? Um, or somebody undergoing that process, what would your advice be to them? And then secondly, what would your advice be to somebody who say, who would say, well, um, I have nothing to deconstruct? Yeah. I think to the first person, um, I would encourage them to um, very much slow down because the tendency is to, I have doubt or I have pain. I'm done with this and to walk away. So uh, just an encouragement for them to do uh, what the Bible, what Jesus calls us to do, and that's to, to seek for the truth and to ask, seek, and knock, right? Uh, the, the Father will not withhold good things from those who ask. And um, to sort of slow down and, and really search out. Um, I would also encourage that person, you know, not, not to be afraid of their questions, uh, that God isn't afraid of their questions. And um, doubt is not always the enemy of faith. Um, and in fact, uh, we're, we're all re always wrestling with doubt, right? And, and you think of uh, words in the Gospels, uh, I believe, help my unbelief. That, that is the life of the Christian in microcosm. Um, I don't try to foist these experiences onto people, but sometimes I'll relay um, the way that certain passages in the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, I, I tend to see myself in them in very stark ways. Uh, Mark's gospel, Jesus feeds 5,000, he feeds 4,000. They're getting in a boat to cross the lake and uh, the disciples realize they don't have any bread and they're wondering and they're moaning about where they're going to find bread. And, and Jesus is not happy with this. Um, he, you know, did, did you, were you not there when I fed 5,000? Where were you, were you not there when I fed 4,000? Uh, do you not see, do you not, have I been with you this long and you still don't understand? And, and coming to see that uh, I am those disciples, right? I, I'm in that story. Um, and I think the gospels are written in that fashion. Uh, it's always been helpful to me and sometimes it can be helpful for other people too, uh, to see that these characters in the Bible uh, were not clean. Uh, they weren't perfect. Or they many times had the same struggles that, that we have and they were there with Jesus, right? Um, I also think of my own faith in terms of uh, when uh, the, after the feeding of the 5,000 in, in John's gospel, 
when uh, the big crowd's following Jesus and he turns to him and he says, you know, if you want to follow me, great, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And the crowd disperses. It's a very odd moment. And, you know, Peter kind of gets in Jesus' face about it. Like, hey, you're running the people away, Jesus. That's the opposite of the point, right? And, uh, and Jesus just confronts him. Hey, Peter, you, you're going to, are you, you want to leave too? And Peter's response is just right where I locate my own faith. Uh, Lord, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And um, I've found those things to be profoundly comforting to me in my own faith over the years. And I think letting people see those sorts of experiences and that they actually occur in the biblical witness and they are there for our edification can encourage people along that journey. Um, and so I, you know, for the person who's experiencing that doubt or that pain, uh, what I want to do as much as I can is, is to slow them down, remain in conversation, point them to a few resources and uh, understanding that, you know, it's never my work. It's, it's always the, the Lord has a way of, of working through people's questions with them. He just does. And uh, so I, I don't, I don't fear that. And I don't, I don't try to, you know, force them back within the fold in a 20 minute conversation in my office. That's not at all what I'm trying to do. I'm simply trying to get them to slow down, really consider, think, pray. And uh, then I pray like crazy for them when they don't know it. Um, so that's what I would say to the first person. Uh, to the second person, I'm, I'm probably a little bit more rough or terse and maybe less patient. Uh, I, I'll just say, hey, um, you know, maybe you're not feeling the tug or the crisis or the doubts. Um, and then I'll say, but you will. You will. And uh, it, it's uh, difficult, if not impossible, uh, to walk through this life and not feel those, those pressures. And so, you know, what I want to encourage them to do is, is consider, you know, the experience in this class or uh, what they're doing with you at your church or in, in these different things. Maybe you don't feel like it is applicable to you right now, but understand you may be like putting tools in a box that can really help you later. Or maybe it's like digging a really deep well that can become a great resource to you uh, later in your life. And in fact, that's my big encouragement to Christian studies majors or people going into ministry and, and how they think about their own education, particularly in biblical theological studies. I tell them, look, your, the purpose at this point in life is to dig for yourself a really deep well from which you will draw from decades to come. And, and so I, I, I encourage, um, I encourage a student like that. I'm thinking of in, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of a scene in Empire Strikes Back, actually, <laughs> where uh, Luke Skywalker tells Yoda, he's not afraid. Right. And, and Yoda pauses and looks at him and says, you will be, mm. you will be. And uh, I, I think that's sometimes what I, what I say to, you know, the over, the overconfident, you know, young believer. I'm also thinking of when uh, my wife and I were taking our family to China in 2016. And uh, I told Jesse, I said, and I'm reading about airports and what Asian airports are like and uh, all the barriers we would face and trying to get from one plane to the other. I said, honey, I am. And I was hoping she would, you know, comfort me. But Jesse, <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm really, really scared of uh, these Asian airports are about to bounce through. And she just said, Oh, you should be. <laughs> <laughs> what a great wife. <laughs> great <laughs> <comforter>. <laughs> Thanks. 
and we're about to, we're about to take uh, our two kids into this. You know, they were like 12 and nine at the time. Right. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, yes, I, I guess that's something of my response to that second student. So there are plenty of critiques of spiritual deconstruction from both within the Christian community and outside of it. Um, but I would really encourage you guys to research it for yourself. And there's plenty of resources. Charles Taylor and Jamie Smith have done a lot of work on this. Also, if you just Google spiritual deconstruction, I'm pretty sure Rhett and Link's spiritual deconstruction story will be the first thing to pop up. But scroll through. Don't be afraid to go to the second page of Google um, and see what you can find. And if anything, just journal for yourself. You might be surprised about what comes out. Um, I know that that's something that always surprises me. You know, when I sit down, I don't realize what I'm going through until I put the pen to the paper. I want to end this this podcast just by encouraging you guys to not be afraid to live in the cross tensions um, and, and the pressures that we're faced with today and, and in our culture, in the church. Every, every sphere of life has them. And I want to encourage you with a quote by a German poet of the 20th century, who said, the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually live along some distant day into the answer. I want to remind you, we're not called to have the answers. We're called to live in faith of the answer. And that's what I believe ordinary spirituality looks like. <laughs>